Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 15, we're going to go down to verse 22. This is what the Word of God says. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it still lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and again, we ask your blessing on our time as we continue to go through the book of Hebrews, and oh, the mercy, and the mercy that you have shown, how truly it is endless as the sea. And what does the new covenant show us but that endless mercy? Lord, that we are constrained now to sing your praises, to sing hallelujah to your name. And so, Father, as we consider now again Jesus, our great sacrificial mediator, we pray that you would show us just how beautiful the cross is and how wonderful it is that we have a mediator that not only came to make a communion bond with us and a covenant bond, but also to lay down his life as the surety of that covenant. Lord, we ask for your help now and give us understanding and illumination and bring in, Lord, wonderful things from your law. Help us to see. Give us eyes today. Have our minds be focused on your word and rid of distraction so that we could worship you with all of our heart, all of our soul, of our mind and strength. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are back in this passage of Scripture today, and for our focus today, we're going to continue on beginning in verse 19 to 22. That really is the focus of our, of our text here. And um, what I want to point out today is really what can be seen as the absolute necessity of blood. That is what the covenantal arrangements of the Bible show us, that there must be blood. And of course, when you're talking about blood, you're talking about death. That's exactly what the analogy in verses 16 to 17 show us, that when a covenant is made, when the person who's making the covenant brings the, the symbolism of death, what he's saying is that that, that he is basically placing an oath upon himself, uh, what is known as a self-malediction. 
that you will incur the very curse of the covenant if you do not fulfill its demands. And that, of course, is what Jesus did when He entered into covenant with us. He laid down His life for us. He shed His blood. He died on behalf of us, and He bore the death that we deserved because we, uh, because of our disobedience, are covenant breakers. But of course, in Christ, He is the ultimate covenant keeper. And the blood is necessary here in this passage. I'm going to show you in two different ways. We can say that the blood is absolutely necessary for ritual cleansing, that is ritual like ceremonial, and it is absolutely necessary for redemptive cleansing, which really the former sort of points to the latter, and both of these things are found in the supremacy of Jesus' own sacrifice, Jesus' own death. But let's begin with ritual cleansing, ritual cleansing, because as we go from the, new, uh, from the old to the new covenant, that's the way the author is moving. He is showing us the principles that are involved in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Sinai, and then he's moving towards the new covenant in order to show us how things have gone from ritual to redemption, from external to internal, from the symbolic to the substance, from the very forms of redemption to the very essence of religion. That is really what he wants to show us and how Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of it. The old covenant was grounded in rituals, in ceremonies, in shadows, and in types. And what was needed in the old covenant was ritual cleansing. In other words, the people of God under the old covenant, they couldn't even engage in the worship of God until they were ceremonially cleansed. And that is what is symbolically represented here in the covenant that God made with Moses. And so this was done through the blood of calves and goats and doves and bulls. All of those things were intended to fulfill what God demanded for His people because of their sin, because of their impurities. And so the very first thing it shows us is that the need for blood was based on the impurity of man. That's what it's really about. It is because we are so stained with sin that we need to be stained, as it were, with blood to make atonement. But really, all of these external applications, whatever they may be, they only point to a deeper redemptive significance in Christ. And that's why uh, when the blood of Christ comes, it really is a progress of revelation itself. It's moving redemption forward. And therefore, in the new covenant, to go backwards, to go back to the observance of circumcision, let's say, or the observance of days, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 10, or Colossians chapter 2, uh, or, or going back to the dietary restrictions. You know, people do this. Uh, I just recently uh, met a, a gentleman who came up to me, and he was glowing because he says he was celebrating one of the feasts of the Bible. And I thought, boy, <clears throat> you know, that really is not the purpose of those feasts today. <laughs> You know, those feasts have been fulfilled in Christ. We no longer, as new covenant believers, we are no longer uh, expected or obligated to observe uh, the Passover, to observe the Feast of Booths, or any of those sort of old 
uh, rituals, ceremonies of the old covenant. Why would we, when the essence of those things has come, when all of those things are mere shadows, why would we go back to the shadows? See, in the new covenant, there is no need for dietary restrictions. So God tells Peter, kill and eat, no longer call unclean what I have cleansed. And so because God had cleansed all of these dietary restrictions, it would be going contrary to God's own trajectory and redemption to go back to the observance of the dietary laws. And the same can be said of the Jewish calendar. Go back to celebrating the, the new moons and the feasts and the Sabbaths and, and all of those things. Not only that, the center for religious worship has also changed. Do you remember what Jesus told the woman there at the well? He said, woman, a day is coming where you will no longer worship God, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but God and the Father is seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, the whole epicenter for our religious life has changed from a man-made constructed temple to a spiritual communion with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the realization of all of those things. But before moving on to show us how Jesus fulfills all these old covenant shadows, that's really what, uh, beginning in verse 23, that's really what we're going to go on to. Notice he says there in verse 23, copies. You see, he's going from the symbol to the substance. But before we go there, I think it's, it's important for us to, to see and to understand just how weighty uh, and significant the blood is for the covenant. And of course, that has application directly to Jesus under the new covenant. But the, the very first thing, notice that blood was used. I'm going to point out three things quickly here. Blood was used to commence the covenant, to commence the covenant. Look at the verse. Verse 18 says here, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, 18. Therefore, even the first covenant, that's always... When it says the first covenant, that's always speaking about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant at Sinai. It says the, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. You see that? It was not inaugurated without blood. What this means is that the curse of the covenant, the self-malediction of the covenant is the basis both for Israel's judgment and for Israel's hope. Now, you know the judgment because immediately upon disobedience, Deuteronomy 28 kicks in and Israel begins to experience the judgments of the covenants, the curse of the covenant, but also because you know that the curse of the law also points us to the remedy of the curse, the reverse of the curse, the curse bearer, if you would, the redeemer. When the covenant was broken, as he says earlier, the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, Israel not only began to immediately experience the death-like nature of the old covenant, what Paul called the curse of the law, what he called in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the ministry of death. Of course, Israel only incurred this, this curse upon themselves even further when they vowed in the covenant, they vowed obedience. Exodus 24, which is really a relevant passage, that's where uh, this whole background of this whole text is from. Exodus 24, 
verses 3 and following. But there, in verse 7, the children of Israel, not only did they enter into covenant with God, they also vowed obedience to the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Of course, they were not obedient. Immediately, actually, they became disobedient. And what that called for was not just the commencing of the covenant with blood, but also, and secondly, the consecration of the covenant people with blood. So the covenant begins, it is, um, it is inaugurated, and it is inaugurated by God with blood, but then also the blood is also applied to the people. Look at, the, look at verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took blood of the calves and the goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, there are some uh, variations. If you go back to Exodus 24 and if you contrast uh, the author of Hebrews' rendition of that text, there are some obvious variations. And so what he's doing in this passage, he's not trying to give us a word-for-word reproduction of of Exodus 24. That's not his aim at all. His aim is theological. He's not trying to copy Exodus. He is trying to flesh out Exodus. He's trying to explain to us all of the theology that is involved. As a matter of fact, you have the presence of scarlet wool. You have the presence of hyssop. It just sounds like I just got tremendously louder. Scarlet wool, there was hyssop, there was a sprinkling of the book itself and all of the people. Those kind of factors are actually picked up in places like Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. Still, what the sprinkled blood represented was the fact that the people needed a special cleansing in order to be found worthy, as Donald Guthrie says, worthy to participate in the covenant with God. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter, if you would, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter himself connects the idea of sprinkling of blood and the sanctification of the people, this time the new covenant people being sanctified, the sprinkling of blood. It says here, Peter, an apostle, Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, as scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen, or the word is elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. That is what we have been chosen for, to be sprinkled with His blood, to be sanctified by the Spirit. So in other words, there's a there are several things going on here. There's a consecration of the book of the law, and some people would say, well, that's representing God's part of the covenant. And then there's a consecration of all of the people, and there's also a reminder of the blood's covenant-binding purpose. As it says there in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, there's a remarkable exegetical detail here that just really helped me. Uh, As many of you know, our church is very is very intentional about being Christ-centered. 
Christocentric, Christ in all of Scripture, and that's the way Scripture should be read. Now, is that just, um, you know, reform people trying to do their thing, uh, or is that something that's rooted in Scripture? I think it's something rooted in Scripture. The reason I say that is because, actually, when Hebrews uses this verse out of Exodus, he actually changes it a bit to assimilate it to Jesus' own words in Mark 14 when he says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. That, that phrase there, this is my blood of the covenant, is reflecting, or the author is reflecting that verse in Mark when he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is a bit different than what you have in Exodus. In other words, and as, as commentators have pointed out, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's, he's taking the Exodus text, and now he is assimilating it so that it reflects the saying of Jesus. Amazing. So what he's saying is that that word that was spoken in Exodus is actually meant to reflect what would be spoken of by Jesus in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Just remarkable. And, and here's another remarkable thing. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, uh, because that's really the verse that stands behind all of this, is Exodus chapter 24. Now, I don't know if you remember seeing this in the Exodus text, but um, not surprising that there would be a connection of the Lord's Supper, even with the words of the covenant, because the old covenant itself was also accompanied and commemorated by a merciful fellowship meal where God feasts with his covenant people instead of consuming them, which is foreshadowing the new covenant meal of Jesus with his disciples. Look at what it says, Exodus 24, beginning in verse 9. It says there, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw God, the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. In other words, they shared a commemorative meal with the God with whom they have just entered into covenant with. It's amazing because what it tells us is that the covenant is an intimate relationship. That's what the covenant is. The covenant is not just God placing a ton of rules and regulations upon a people. It really reflects his heart that to be in covenant with God means that God is desiring to fellowship with us, to be intimate with us in a, in a communion bond sealed with the blood. It's just an incredible imagery that is obviously picked up all over the pages of the New Testament. Last thing, not only was there a, the, the, the covenant was only commenced with blood, not only was there a consecration of the people with blood, but there's also the consecration of the covenant sanctuary. That's the way I want to term it. Because look at what it says. It says that he then goes on to say that, 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 that he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. 
The skene, the tent, the sacred tent was also uh, sprinkled with blood, he says. That's amazing because really in the Old Testament, you're not going to find an exact um, passage of Scripture. You won't find a verse that says the tabernacle was sprinkled with blood. And so what he means by that, I think, by extension, is that when the vessels of the ministry were sprinkled, as they were, as the mercy seat was sprinkled with blood, as the, the vessels, the tools, the instruments, all of the utensils that the priest would use in order to minister unto the Lord, that that was, and then when the altar out in the courtyard was sprinkled with blood, that was, in a sense, the consecration of the entire tabernacle. It's an extensive way of speaking about the application of the blood. But here's another thing. If you look at uh, Exodus 40 and Leviticus chapter 8, I don't expect you to turn there, but to just jot it down in your mind, that when you go there, what you do find is that not only was blood used to consecrate the tabernacle, but oil was used as well. So you have the, you have the presentation of blood and oil. Now, obviously, scholars have speculated what was the prime purpose for the, the use of oil to uh, anoint the holy place. Well, Dillich, which is an Old Testament scholar and also wrote a wonderful commentary in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, what he says is this, is that essentially the blood is usually used negatively. That is to say, it is used to cleanse and to remove impurity. Whereas oil on the, on the opposite end is used positively. In other words, it is anointing someone or something for the purpose of holy use. So in both of those things, we see that Moses anointed the tabernacle with blood and with oil. And in doing so, the priests then used these instruments to impart the grace of God to the people. It was a, it was a sacramental uh, use of the holy things because it imparted grace to the people of God. Just amazing. The tabernacle, however, ex however it was applied with, it was, it was to be consecrated as the dwelling place between God and man. That really is sort of the essence of all the tabernacle imagery. Now, I've you know I've asked you to do this before, but you you remember that in the Bible. The idea of temple, the idea of a tabernacle, that is a theme that is presented throughout the Bible from beginning to end, literally. From the very outset of the Bible, you see God dwelling among his people in what some have called a garden temple. God there appearing in the midst of a, of a paradisical environment with his people that is later picked up on all throughout the scriptures. And it's, to me, no question that Eden represented a primitive sanctuary equipped with uh, a sacerdotal tree. In other words, a tree that had the ability to impart grace, namely the tree of life. And that is also found in Revelation uh, repeatedly, the tree of life is found again when we come into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want you to turn with me, would you, to Revelation 21. 
Because I think that oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we are, temp- we are tempted to think that all of this blood that is mentioned everywhere, I mean, we are 21st century people. Uh, we don't go around talking about blood all the time. If you do, you might end up getting locked up somewhere, right? So all this blood mess that is talked about everywhere in the uh, Old Testament and throughout, what is it really getting at? Are these people just this ancient civilization, this primitive religious activity that really has no bearing on our lives today other than just a historical reflection? No, I don't think so. What they were doing is they, they were laying down for us an essential component of the intricate plan of God for all of the ages. That's why the tabernacle had to be cleansed with blood because the place where God and men dwell together had to be a holy place, a sacred place. And what that means is that that really is the whole purpose for which Christ came. That's why it says in Hebrews 9.26 that he is bringing in the consummation of the ages. It's all being bound up in him. All being bound up in him. Now, these Old Testament texts, all of the blood and the tabernacle and the tent and the altar and all of that is really meant to represent the purity of God's consummate glory with His church. The idea that we will dwell with God in perfect holiness, in a habitation of glory, Revelation 21 1 through 5. Don't go too long in your Christian life without reflecting on this most glorious of promises in Scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth pass away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready for as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Faithful and true words that will surely come to pass as sure as you are sitting here today and I am speaking to you today. These words will come to pass. And this, what is this other than nuclear strength for a discouraged Christian? I don't know if you heard about the shooting in Colorado this week. Seems like every day now we're waking up, new shooting on the news, right? Some psychopath goes into a crowd or some terrorist or some jihadist walks into a building and just starts annihilating people. Well, actually, the gentleman who, the the police officer that was murdered in Colorado actually was a a believer. He was actually a very strong Christian. He was an elder. My wife and I actually sat up the other night playing one of his sermons on her phone. And we listened to his sermon. Guess what he's preaching? He was preaching the book of Hebrews. (laughs) So I really wanted to listen. And I thought, you know, how utterly devastated is that family? How devastated is his wife with 
now left alone with her children. You know, I have a good friend uh, in Montana who exactly the same thing happened to her. Her husband was a police officer. He was doing a routine traffic stop. Guy got out and shot him and killed him. And now she's left with two little kids and no husband. And just like that, you could be racked with tears and pain and mourning and weeping and, and, and really feeling what it means to live in a Genesis 3 world. But Genesis 3 is pointing us to Revelation 21, verse 3, where God is going to dwell with His people, where He is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. So when we think of tabernacle, temple, What we should be drawn to is that what the Bible is setting before us is the theme that speaks of endless joy, mercy, as endless as the sea, as we sang. A tear-filled happiness, an inexpressible glory, an intoxicating intimacy with God, and terrible holiness. The reason, of course, is because the cleansing of the first covenant with all of its ancient symbolism spoke not only for the need to be cleansed ritually, ceremonially, but it also spoke for the need to be redemptively cleansed. And that is really where where I want to go next. Not only the ritual cleansing of the Old Covenant, but the redemptive cleansing that is implied as well. Look at verse 22 with me of Hebrews 9. It says, and according to the law, see, this is all in accordance with the Old Covenant. One may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, that's important. Go back to chapter 8 of Hebrews. To see that forgiveness is a critical theme of the new covenant. Remember what it says there. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. So the old covenant promises a magnificent forgiveness. Now turn to chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 15. The Spirit Himself was prophesying about these very things. It says, The Spirit also testifying to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I put my laws in their heart, and and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So in other words, what the law shows us is the absolute necessity for the blood atonement of Christ. Without the shedding of the blood of Jesus, even more than that, without the death of Jesus. Because what does the blood point to? The need to bleed? No. The need to die. John MacArthur says, if we could be saved by the shedding of blood, then the animals would have been bled, not killed. But the animals were killed to remind us that that the blood is a mere symbol of death. As we're told in Leviticus, the life of the soul is in the blood. And so when the blood is forfeited, the life is forfeited. And that's what the symbolism there means. But all of this is brought in to bring you and I redemptive cleansing through the blood of Jesus. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says, 
without the shedding of blood. And that's interesting only to point out that that word shedding of blood, which is actually one Greek word, is a true, uh, what they call a hapax legomena. You remember that word, okay? You discussed it over dinner tonight. <laughs> a hapax legomena just means a word that is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. And here's the thing is that Historically, what we find is that this Greek word is actually only found outside of the New Testament among Christian authors. F.F. Bruce and others even suggest the author coined the word. He coined it in application to the, to the atoning work of Jesus. Well, I don't know if he did, and there's all these scholars that debate over, over all of that. But what's important here is what this is pointing us to is that the, the shedding of blood, the, the, the atoning work that is represented by the blood is absolutely necessary if you and I are going to be forgiven by God. And that's the most important thing of all. The most important thing of all is to be forgiven. Uh, the shedding of blood then speaks about the principle of substitution, the, the, the dying on behalf of the people, the covenant people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He died for us as our covenant mediator. He went in between. He died in our place. And that is what the shedding of blood is all about. Not only to make a person ceremonially clean, but also then to forgive them of their sins, to cover their sins, to remove their sins so that God remembers our sins no more. That's what all the shadows and the types and all of the symbols, that's what all that represented. And the people in the Old Testament, they died, as Hebrews says, Hebrews eleven thirteen. they died in faith. In faith of what? In faith of what the types and shadows symbolized, which was the object of all of those things, which was the Messiah, which was the Lamb of God, which was the true Passover Lamb, Pascal Lamb. The Old Covenant is full of shadow. It is full of symbolism and ritual. But all of that is pointing to the awesome reality of a crucified Savior that dies not just to make us acceptable before God, but to remove our sin, to forget our sin. Just amazing. You know, when we think about what is the application of this for our lives today, well, of course, we understand that the people were cleansed so that they can offer God worship. You understand that the other thing that the blood of Jesus does for us is that it sanctifies us so that we're able to serve the living God. That's what it does. Think about it. Without the blood of Christ, we cannot serve the living God. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, all of our gifts, all of our servings would be turned to dust and ashes. But because of the sanctifying power of the blood of Christ, the very gifts that we offer God are sanctified. They are consecrated. It is only because of the blood that all of our prayers and our sermons, our fellowship, our giving, all of the, all of the motives of our heart can be cleansed. All things, as it were, are cleansed and sanctified by the cross. Your whole Christian life is lived in light of that gospel truth. There is not one thing that we offer God on our own. 
There is not one thing, brothers and sisters, that we do for God that is not consecrated by God. Because all of our gifts, all of our offerings, everything that we do is tainted. It's polluted. Everything is defective because of our Adamic sin. Everything needs to be cleansed. Everything needs to be sanctified. Ezekiel prayed, God, forgive me for the iniquity of my holy things. Everything, even the holy things that we do, has to be cleansed by God. Just when we think that all of our motives are pure, just when we think we are walking in purity, just when we think we are pleasing to the Lord, the blood reminds us that it's only on the basis of the blood that any of those gifts that we offer God are even acceptable to Him. This is the blood's power. It is the power of the blood to take away our sin. It is the power of the blood that Jesus shed that because of that sin, no other offering is even necessary. You don't have to work yourself up. You don't have to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. Right? As we are so often, we often tend to do. We're reminded, therefore, of the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 18 says that after this, there is no need for any offering of sin. Christ has made a perfect atonement. Because of Jesus' blood, we have been redeemed and we have been purchased. So here is where the blood of Christ also puts us in an accountable position. We're accountable because the blood of Jesus was shed for one reason, that is to purchase us. To redeem us means God has procured us. He has obtained us. We are his possession. We belong to him. We are no longer our own, as Paul says. That means our lives have to reflect a life in slavery to God. And there's no greater freedom. Jesus said that the blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's why blood is sacred in the Bible, even in the New Covenant. One of the stipulations of the New Covenant, according to Acts 15, is that believers are not to drink or eat blood that is from strangled animals because it shows the blood hadn't been dealt with properly, it hadn't been sanctified, or it hadn't been, uh, it hadn't been dealt with in an honorable way. The, the animal hadn't been properly drained of its blood. And, and there's all kinds of reasons. There's hygienic reasons why you don't want to eat blood. And um, what that means for those of you that like your steak really, really rare, I don't know. <laughs> Let's just say that uh, I like my steak well done. I want a burnt offering, okay? <laughs> but it just reminds us that the blood is precious. The reason why God told the people of Israel, don't eat the blood, don't drink the blood, is because that would be a profaning of the blood. That would make the blood something common, not something that was sacred. And therefore, people were to abstain. It was all reflecting what, Paul, what Peter called later the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is what is most costly of all. Think about it. There will be no greater value in all the world than the blood of Jesus on the day of judgment. When you have no other recourse as to why your sin should be forgiven, 
why you should not be an object of his wrath. You will have no other recourse. You will have nothing else to fall back on but the blood of Jesus. Truly, we will say with the hymnist, his blood, Jesus' blood has paid it all. We need nothing else because through his blood, not only did Jesus make us bring us into the covenant through his blood not only did jesus sanctify the people in the covenant but his blood also forgives us in the covenant so that god remembers our sins no more this is what hebrews means when it says that by his blood our conscience has been cleansed cleansed by the blood let's pray together father lord remind us again and again that the blood is not simply a, a verse in a hymn. It's not just a point to rhyme in our songs. But the blood of Jesus represents the very life principle of Jesus Christ. The fact that his life was emptied out for us. Those of us who so deserve your wrath. Because apart from the blood of Jesus, every person in this room deserves infinite wrath. And yet, based on the blood of Christ, we have infinite mercy, infinite grace, and infinite cleansing. Thank you, Lord, that you cleanse us in the deepest part of who we are. That the blood of Jesus doesn't just make us religious, but the blood of Jesus brings us into a living, thriving relationship with the living God. Father, we pray that as we meditate on the, the importance and the sacredness of the blood of Christ, oh Lord, that we would never diminish the blood's potency, that we would never diminish the power of the blood by trying to be justified in our own Cells, by ourselves, by our good works, by what we do, by our own religiosity, understanding, Lord, that there's nothing that we can do. There's no offering that we can give that can compare with the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, above all, we pray, increase our faith in the, the blood, which is to say, in the cross. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.